Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, my colleague Tom Kenny and myself, Ronnie O'Gorman, produce a page in the Galway Advertiser with Tom's photograph and a story from Galway's past. We contact each other beforehand to see what has been published that week. And our podcast today is That Conversation. Tom, good morning. Nice to talk to you again. And you, Ronnie. Yeah, good to hear. Yeah. Uh, I'm just amazed at how quickly the weeks go by, Tom. I mean, it's a, as long as we're not getting any older, <laughs> then it, the, the quick passing of the weeks doesn't matter. I think that's the way to look at it. I don't know about you, but I find time is going by a bit too fast. Anyway, Tom, here we go again. What are you doing this week? Well, um, I am talking about two jeans. Uh-huh. The little two pipe. jeans were clay pipes, yeah. exactly. <clears throat> yeah. And they they kind of, before cigarettes were invented, uh, <laughs> two jeans were the common smoke of the common man. <clears throat> uh, they obviously originated in Europe with the discovery of tobacco by Columbus, who brought uh, tobacco back to Europe for the first time. Yeah. Um, and uh, they started making clay pipes. Apparently, American Indians were already making them before that. But they started, and all of the early kind of pipes that we got in Galway were either from England or from Holland. Uh, Amsterdam was kind of the center of tobacco in Europe when, when the business of importing tobacco into Europe started. <clears throat> I often and wondered so, how Columbus persuaded people to put a light a lighted pile of tobacco. Well, they were obviously doing it before they got there, you see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, they used to chew it and, and make drinks right. from it as well. I mean, it, yeah. it, was, it had multitudinous uses. At the time, <clears throat> um, the the first kind of uh, pipes that we know of that were appeared in Galway, and we know that they started to actually make pipes in Galway around 1700, the year 1700. Oh, yeah. All of these dates, incidentally, are <clears throat> uh, come from archaeologists who have been making digs in, like, where the custom house is, for example, or along Merchants Road, <clears throat> and where they've been uncovering these um the Dujin was a very short pipe, a small pipe. Uh, it was incidentally known as a cutty for some reason in uh, Scotland and as a nose warmer in England. <laughs> yes, which I thought burned comfortably a, there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a very good description, really. Isn't it just? Yeah. There were longer uh, versions where the stem was much longer yeah. of the pipe as well. And they were known variously in this country as the Lord of Mercy oh. or as Banach to Jay, because <laughs> that was usually what you said when you were handed, uh, particularly at wakes, when you were handed a long pipe with the tobacco already in it. Mm. Um, and yes, of course, that was, the, yeah. that was the great tradition of wakes at the time. People would order about a gross of these pipes and, uh, put in some cheap tobacco and they would be handed out to all and sundry together with Guinness and Porter and whiskey at, at the, uh, and sometimes these, um, these pipes were decorated. They might on the bowl, they might have 
a shamrock, there might be a round tower, a wolf hound, uh, you know, home rule, the head. What were they the made from? What were they made from? They were made from clay. Clay, right. Clay, yeah. yeah. And uh, and they didn't really taste, I don't know if you've ever had one in your mouth, but they no. taste kind of dry and slightly tacky. So uh, some people who, you wouldn't like clench this between your teeth now, for instance, yeah. uh, because they were very brittle. They had a very short shelf life and you needed to take care of them. So if you wanted to empty the residue of tobacco out of the bowl, you didn't, for example, tap it off a hard surface because it would simply break. Yeah. Uh, so you had to take care of them. Uh, quite a lot of people would dip the <clears throat> mouthpiece in Guinness or in whiskey, uh, which gave it obviously a much more pleasant taste. Yeah. But uh, they would dip it in a cup of tea. All right. Uh, so yeah. it was very much the common man's um, smoke. And of course, in the 19th century, if you had a pipe with home rule on it, people knew what your politics were yes. straight away. Yes. That's good. That's good. I think women smoke them too. I think I've seen precisely it with women smoking just, the duodene. <clears throat> they did, yeah. Yeah. They did. It was men and women. Mm. And um, while you would get them occasionally in grocery shops, it was mostly actually in pubs, yes. in alehouses and taverns yes. that they were mm. actually sold. And indeed, mm. in some uh, public houses, they would actually hand them out free with the, Ooh, with right. the um, drink order. Right. So the, we do know, and the photograph that I have this week is of the Heinz uh, factory making pipes on number six Prospect Hill. Oh, my goodness. That's uh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we know that there were a number of others in Galway. There was a man called Samuel Gorman right. in William Street West. These were all 19th century. <coughs> Excuse me, Mary Hines, who is the Prospect Hill lady I'm talking about. She was there from 1881 to 1908. Her son, I presume, uh, Michael Hines, carried on the business until 1911. And there was another man called Lawrence O'Gorman, who right. in the 1880s um, <clears throat> was working from Presentation Road. His, yeah. his little factory was on Mill Street. Uh, but it seems to have died out then. I mean, the cigarette was being invented around that time, and uh, that seemed to take care of the... Yeah. Now, it was a very skilled thing, making pipes, um, and there's a lovely story uh, in Knock Crockery in County Roscommon was the centre in Ireland of pipe making for some reason. Right. Uh, obviously, one very good family... Yeah, who started making them, but um, get the clay into the mold was quite a skilled thing. To insert a needle into the mold was a very skilled thing. In other words, to make a hole for the smoke to come through. Uh, to light the kiln was also very skilled. Uh, but the last part of the job was the, the people who scraped the the excess clay off the pipes when it came out of the mold. Mm -hmm. And the big insult was from the skilled to the unskilled was 
you're only a pipe scraper. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what it was, quite an insult, apparently. Look, as you're talking, it had a wider, talk, yeah, I know it the had museum. a wider kind of uh, meaning yeah. than just for people <laughs> making yeah. pipes. Yeah, scrapings. Yeah, there's several examples in the museum now that you're talking about. I, I know there I've are. seen them yeah. there, so they're there to be seen and should be seen. The Heinz factory was a busy place. Yeah. There are about 10 or 12 people in the photograph. Mm, and right. stacks and stacks of pipes, but obviously, uh, and I reckon the photograph is about the year 1900. Right. Uh, but now the cigarette was coming in, and so yeah. it was no longer really viable to make. Um, workers were paid piecemeal, depending on how much they produced. That's how they got paid. Okay. Well, I can see that they mightn't have been very popular with the modern woman now. I, you, I can't imagine a modern woman smoking a pipe. Can you, Tom? Uh, no, I know of one or two who did. Now, the other <laughs> thing that happened, by the way, yeah. with, at the end of the 19th century was yeah. the briar. They were making um, pipes out of briar. These right. would be the pipes that we would have known, really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that also didn't, and you could reuse that again and again. You had to take great care of the clay pipes, the do jeans, as they say. Right. Good man. Good man. Well, that's and, and actually the nose warmer is a nice name because I, I think I remember somebody, my father or somebody telling me that the best way to shine a pipe was to shine it off the side of your nose. So, so really? <laughs> the number of uses for one's nose. That's I never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Tom, that's that's excellent. Having a photograph of that factory and so many people working in there is absolutely crucial. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, listen, I still on about the Connemara Railway. And uh, what I'd like to do sometimes is to try and get into the background of these things, how it came about that there was a Connemara Railway. And in fact, I was absolutely fascinated by, you know, the origins of that railway, because we're talking about the last two decades, really, of the 19th century, when the English Parliament were driven mad by the Irish Parliamentary Party. It was a brilliantly organized, robust party, and it was moving along to get home rule. And it already had tried to pass it once. It was just defeated up again, just defeated a second time. But this only whetted the appetite of the Irish parliamentarians who were pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And there was only a matter of time before they would have won it. The Irish Parliamentary Party was led at this time by the most formidable figure in Irish par- in uh, general parliamentary history. And that's a British source. And that's Charles Stuart Parnell. He was recognized as an absolutely formidable figure, a brilliant leader, and was now, you could say, home rule was in his grasp. Now, Gladstone was the liberal prime minister that was in favor of home rule, actually. But now he was defeated. There was a new prime minister, a conservative, Lord Salisbury, and he appointed his his nephew, Arthur J. Balfour, to be the uh, Lord Lord Secretary of Ireland. Now, everybody laughed when they heard that appointment because obviously nepotism had gone mad. And uh, the feeling was this man must be an incompetent that he was given this little job on a silver tray. But in fact, Balfour was no, no door whatsoever. And quickly coming to Ireland, 
Remember, after two decades of the land war, of uh, landlords being murdered, their agents being shot, you had boycott, you had massive demonstrations, people in jail, you had a huge swell in the country against the landlord system. And Balfour comes in and so immediately that the problem in Ireland was rural poverty, the landlord system and lack of commercial opportunities for people living in the country. So incredibly, he set about killing home rule with kindness. It was never done before, but he saw that these landlords, some of them were rotten. He couldn't stand the greedier landlord and said so in no uncertain terms. And he had absolutely no time for absentee landlords. And so with his secretary, George Wyndham, a very interesting man, actually, he drafted a series of land acts that brought, that simply bought out the landlords, just paid the money to go and to offer the land for their tenants. And this was done to hugely successful case. You can imagine the upheaval this caused, but Balfour, I, I should have said, was a, a very strict pro-unionist and he did not want home rule whatsoever to Ireland. So this was his way of killing it and succeeding indeed. Uh, not only did he buy out the landlords, but he offered their land for sale to the tenants and uh, made the sale very attractive, uh, reduced uh, uh, f uh, fees. Uh, they could borrow money again at very reduced um, interest and spread their repayment over 60 years. So it was a win-win situation. In a matter of years, 200,000 tenants had now owned their own land. The whole landlord class was told was, was put into disarray. They left mainly to resettle in England and with them resettling, you could say, so the power went with them. And now the power was coming back onto the people that mattered. And really, a lot of the tenants now were so busy that home rule was just not the first thing in their minds. So Balfour was succeeding a little bit, but he went much, much further. He also introduced this uh, Light Railways Act, of which I spoke about last week, of which the Galway-Clifton Railway was part of. He started up the congested district boards. This congested districts means overpopulated areas with very little going for them. And he introduced things like money to develop fisheries, to build piers, land drainage, extra housing, better housing, I should say. But Tom, he went further than that. It's, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary that someone should do that. And remember, he was a strictly Protestant aristocratic man. And if you like, had turned on his own class. They could not believe what was coming down the track towards them with Balfour. The last extraordinary thing, or one of the extraordinary things he did, was to go on a walkabout of Connemara, into Mayo and up into Donegal, only bringing with him his sister, referred to in the book as Miss Balfour, George Wyndham, his very able secretary, and two other government officials, no armed guard, no police watching over him, nothing like that. I mean, it was only eight years since Cavendish and Burke were killed in the Phoenix Park, uh, 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 public servants of some note. Cavendish particularly was the Lord Lieutenant just ahead of Balfour. And yes, I'm just, sorry, cutting yeah. across. I'm actually reading a book at the moment by 
Julie Kavanagh. Called oh, the go Irish, on. Go on. Yeah. The Irish Assassins. Yes, right. And it is all about the murder of uh, Frederick Robert Cavendish. Cavendish. Yeah, and Thomas yeah. Burke. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, sorry. No, no. Just no, interrupt no. you briefly. Parnell uh, featured very strongly in it. And what comes across about him is his power as an orator, how extraordinarily fine a speaker he was. And just on another brief aside, I know he came to the square and made a speech at one stage, but I've never been able to track it down yet. Yeah. Uh, I'd love <clears throat> to find an illustration of him in Galway. But yeah. anyway, someday, someday. Well, there's no illustration, Tom, but I actually have the book. I have to have the book. Um, the uh, British newspaper produced uh, his tour and all that was said. And indeed, when he came to the, the railway hotel, as was known at the time, he met Galway's great and the good. And uh, at that stage, however, the remember you and I were talking about why they chose the middle of Connemara for the railway route and not to take in the coastal areas of Spiddle, uh, Carrow, Roundstone, and go around to Clifton that way, where there were fisheries, where they could have hopefully brought people's fish to the various markets going back into Galway and then to Dublin. But that decision actually was made by a royal commission. And I, I just haven't the time or the ability to search out that. So it's, it's written somewhere why they made that decision. So when Balfour came to Galway, he was asked again, would it be possible to bring in the, uh, the coastal towns in on the railway system? And he said, no, no, that argument is over. That argument is over. It'll go through the center of Connemara. And then there was an extraordinary, and the people pushing Gluis in Galway will take, will take some hope, I hope, from this, that there was a suggestion made that there should be a steam tram service that would uh, service the coastal districts and bring the fish uh, to Clifton or, uh, you know, or to Galway. I don't think it was to come into Galway. I think it was just to service the coastal areas and uh, come into Galway. And Balfour said that, look, he said, I'm not lacking in zeal. And he did make a great speech. I'm not lacking in zeal of what I will, what I will do uh, for the people of rural Ireland. But I don't think that's quite on the cards. But I will look at it again. Like all politicians, he played safe. Yeah. And when he left, he was cheered at the station. And gentlemen were seen raising their hats to his train as it left the station for Dublin. So, so he really made an extraordinary impression. A few years later, actually, he succeeded his uncle as prime minister of Britain and led a very amazing and distinguished career. Not always popular, but certainly he left a very popular uh, rural community behind him in Ireland because the changes that he made were permanent and uh, were built upon in further um, further uh, land acts. But just to speak about Parnell, and people know this story, uh, just two dates struck me when I was looking at this town. One was when Balfour set out with his sister and his three uh, assistants from Dublin. It was in October 1890. The following month, November 1890, Parnell almost lost the backing and the moral support of Ireland when his, the details of his divorce with Catherine O'Shea 
were published. Now, he had been living with Catherine O'Shea, a married woman, for many years, was well known. He had at least two children by her, I think a third, I'm not sure. He certainly had two children by her, but it took time for the divorce to come through. Nobody really bothered too much about that until the divorce was published in the newspapers and he, Parnell, the great Parnell, was mentioned as co-respondent. And of course, the Catholic Church and the Holy Catholic Ireland put their hands to their mouth in horror that such a thing could happen. And a massive debate took place. And oh, Parnell slipped from the favorite man of the, of the era. Uh, he lost control of the parliamentary party. The parliamentary party, you won't be surprised to hear this, fell among themselves fighting and roaring and debating and dividing in two for Parnell, against Parnell. Of course, home rule was dropped completely from the agenda. And would have to wait, would have to wait indeed until 1916, but it was lost. And Parnell, poor man, was disgraced and he died very soon after that in his 40s. In his 40s. Yeah, he was very young. Very yeah. young. Yeah. So, as I said, the, re the, the reason for the railway is almost more interesting than the railway itself, Tom, you know. Well, indeed, yeah. But yeah. wouldn't you love, I would certainly love to have been on that railway. Yeah. I remember MB, yeah. MB wrote, the auctioneer, sadly deceased now. Uh, he got on the train one day. He, he, he knew he had an uncle in Uterard. He got on the train and he got off at Uterard and people said, where are you going? And he said, I'm looking for my uncle. <laughs> and, but he, he was only a child. He didn't know his uncle's name. I mean, he caused all kinds of panic, as you can imagine. But, uh, no, he couldn't remember much of the detail of the trip. But I do remember um, uh, Walter Mackin talking about people who had been honest and also talking about that part of the track just outside Uterard where it was genuinely slave labor where they had to dig right down uh, into the rock to bring keep the track level, not going over hills at all. Yes. And in many cases, it was bog, but in that particular area... That had to be drained. It had, yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. uh, so it was a, quite a terrific feat of engineering at the time. Yeah, that is that a definite... Uh, you know, aspect of the railway. Okay, we can react emotionally to it, but yes, it was an extraordinary engineering feat, actually. Over bog, through granite, as you said, cutting deep, deep sort of valleys in that rock. You can still see some of them are still there. Uh, yeah. Seven railway stations. I mean, it was a tremendous feat altogether. And I, I, I hope to be digging digging into that a bit next week. But Tom, did Amby Roach ever find his uncle? Uh, well, somebody found him and brought him home. <laughs> I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember, but uh, he lived to tell the tale anyway. Right, right. He lived to tell the tale. Well, I'm yeah. sure very often in those days, someone would have found him his uncle, but as you said, he was only a boy. Such a oh, yeah. Bring him home. Yeah. Um, well, you, the, it all is not lost because, as I said, there are efforts made now to revive the railway to, for eight 
kilometers uh, through the Mam Valley, which would be worth doing a lovely tourist attraction. Um, the whole railway system, though, that the, the there is a green road there, all right, I think for most of us, but a lot of it travels through private land. And, you know, people aren't too keen on giving land, you know, for public Well, the land belonged originally to the railway company. It did, did. yes. There is, of course, a greenway now from Ballinahinch to Clifton. Yes, Um, I've walked that. I haven't been on it yet, no. Yeah, Yeah. I've walked that. Yes, there is. And they've redone that lovely bridge just outside Ballinahinch, a beautiful old metal bridge. Um, really very fine, very good job done there. Um, You see, there are people who are very keen on conservation and they give voluntary life and they give their time and they they work summer after summer, you know, reviving these valuable things that we so appreciate today and we just regret their passing, you know. A bit like the old clay pipes, Tom. Yes, well, the clay pipes kind of in later (laughs) years when they were no longer making them, are indeed smoking them. They were kind of an object almost of um, yes, it's kind of Paddy the Irishman stuff, you know, yeah. which are doujin in your gob. And, uh, and upside down. Yeah. Exactly. So they were a very important part of life, really, yeah. at the time. Yeah. Well, okay, Tom, I'm looking forward to seeing that photograph. Um, it's wonderful to get a, a sort of a, an industry, you know, people working and uh, working on such a popular thing as the pipes. So it is, yeah. Well, we leave yeah. it at that then, Tom. And uh, okay, I have to try and we'll squeeze next week. Squeeze yeah. my stuff into the space that's available. But anyway, we'll do our best as we do. Okay, Tom. I'm sorry. I uh, excuse me. I just have a bad cough all of a sudden. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know we always fight over space, but it works. No, I about, fight. I fight. But it anyway, works out about a... even in the end of the year. I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Even harder. Anyway. I, I all right. I'm out. Shot. No. Okay. Talk Never to you next that. week. So take care, Tom. Lovely. Okay. Lovely. Right. Lovely. Yep. Look forward to Good that. Bye, Tom. Bye, bye.